It is August, and um, we're beginning a new academic year. And there's um, a, a way our culture has kind of taken on that rhythm, whether you're in school or not, or have children or not. But there's sort of a restart. And as you look around churches, it's um, almost without exception that churches begin a brand new curriculum in August or September to start a new year. And so there's a sense in which um, this season has become for us a bit like New Year's, or in the Christian faith in December, like Advent. It's the beginning of a new year, and it's a time of kind of self-analysis. And so I put this question before us. How serious, how committed are we as Christians? How, how devoted are you to your Christian faith? Is it a side thing? Is it one of many things that's, that you do or give yourself to? Or is it that central thing that gives you identity, that gives you purpose? And our, our readings today kind of just face us with this question. They put it before us to ask ourselves to wrestle with how um, committed we are to Christ, whether we seek him who has the words of life or if we'll go away also. Um, I go back to this um, reading that we had today from 1 Kings. And in our church, we follow the Lutherans and the Methodists and the Catholics. We read every three years through the cycle of Scripture. And this year, we get two readings from Solomon's life, and then we're done. Now, if, if you were to read, there are readings appointed for every day, for Monday through Saturday, and if you were to re read those, you'd get the rest of Solomon's life. And the picture we get of Solomon has these two sides. The first is this Solomon that we know who prayed for wisdom, not for wealth, not for power or opportunity. He prayed for wisdom. And then he began to judge really. He set up cities in chapter 4. He made that wise decision between the two harlots arguing over the child. He began trade. He built this massive temple. To, to this day, I mean, it really was an architectural um, masterpiece. I mean, it was impressive in its day. And he went on to accumulate a great deal of wealth. And this is that Solomon. Chapter 7 and 8, if you were to read them, are beautiful prayers. They really are. But if you take all those readings, in between them, the writer of Kings is going to give you the other side of Solomon, just like the writer of Samuel gives you the other side of David. The book of Chronicles, if you ever wonder about that, it's a polished-up version that's much later, and it's written without all the mistakes of David and Solomon, and there's a reason for it. It's a reason to bring hope that the nation can be faithful again. But now, in Kings, we get the real Solomon. In chapter 2, he begins his reign. It's not something we often put into the children's story. David had told Solomon, by the way, when you take the throne, send Benaiah. Benaiah is their henchman. He's, he's their secret service guy. And um, in, in, in a form of today, you know, wiping out your political enemies, that's what Benaiah did. He just took the sword, ran him down, and killed him. And that's the first order that Solomon gives. In chapter 3, he goes back to Egypt. Do you remember that from the reading I gave from Deuteronomy today? Don't go back that way again. Why has Solomon gone to Egypt? To make a treaty, to secure power, to secure his throne. And he brings back Pharaoh's daughter as a wife. Pharaoh's daughter is not a Yahweh worshiper, so she needs a temple. And that's the first sign. I mean, scholars get it. There's a crack. This is going to be a problem because now he's got worship places for Yahweh and for the gods of Egypt. And then we get that beautiful prayer. 
But it's not so beautiful and not so clean and neat when you see what's happened. And Solomon begins, the nations begin to come and praise him, and he begins to build this temple, this structure that God allowed, he did not ask for. That's important. And this massive structure is going up. How did Solomon build that thing? Well, chapters 5 and 7 and 11 tell you all the immigrants and the refugees who'd come to Israel were put into slave labor and made to build it. Solomon sees an opportunity. Here's the nations of Canaan that were not wiped out, and so he puts them to slave labor. And there's an odd part of this because chapter 7 or 8 says when Solomon did not put the Israelites into slave labor. But if you know chapter 11, this is a really important one. Solomon's dying. His son Rehoboam has taken the throne. And the people come to Rehoboam and they say, take off the burden your father put on us to build. The Israelites had had to not be slaves, but they had had to work seven-day weeks. They had to live under the strong hand of Solomon to get this architectural work, to get the trade going. He put a heavy burden on the people for his own fame. Then you get there in chapter 9 and 10 and 11, Solomon begins to accumulate gold. The word gold, if you see it, it's mentioned an excessive number of times. The law I read from Deuteronomy, the king only must not acquire for himself much gold or silver. And the last thing Solomon does is he accumulates the women. He loves the ladies. 700 wives and 300 concubines. He's probably not sleeping with all of them, but a good share. And he's got all of the trappings of a great king of the ancient world in his prime. And the writer of Kings add, and the women whom he married from foreign nations led his heart away from the Lord, and he followed him no longer. It's this unraveling of Solomon's life as he gains political fame and success in the world. The, 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 the steps that our culture gives us to get to fame, to success, to security, to, to get a name, to get a pension, to get your kids into good schools. Solomon's just marching up that thing on the backs of his nation, on the backs of his faith. Because he can't let go of that secure kind of grasp on worldly demands and needs. He wants, as the old proverb has it, to run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. His prayers are sincere and beautiful, but his idolatry and his coveting and his hoarding is brutal and sad. Solomon wanted both worlds. We move ahead to John chapter 6 today. I mean, it kind of just leads us right there to the gospel with Jesus. And uh, James preached for us last week. I wasn't here. I was at, um, at the wedding with Kelly and Quentin. But I know he preached on the bread of life. That Jesus has said to the crowds, I am the bread of life. He who eats my bread and drinks my, eats my flesh and drinks my blood will never thirst again. And the people say, give us this bread always. And this is the hard saying that Jesus is responding to. The disciples said, this is a hard saying. And they began to leave him. Now, to borrow some of James' context, I don't know all of what he covered. But there's a couple of things that are going on here. These people had come, and when Jesus fed the 5,000 in John 6, 
the Jews knew very well that this is a Moses figure. This guy just put a bunch of manna on the ground and it's coming out and there's 12 basketfuls left. There's a prophet on the scene. They know that. And Jesus faces them and says, you seek me not for signs because you ate and you were filled. There's a kind of Solomon here. You come because you want food, but you're not ready to follow me. You're not ready and prepared to leave and believe that I'm greater than Moses. The people want their old temple. They want their old religion, and they're not ready to give it up for this wandering, poor-looking, simple man from Nazareth. And they leave and go back to their Judaism. They go back to their old life. And Jesus puts it to his disciples, and he puts it to us. Will you leave me too? And that's the test of the serious Christian faith. After the sermon, I always take about 30 seconds of silence for you to sit. And this is our task today. When I look at my checkbook, when I wake up in the morning, and I think through the agenda for the day, what fills that in? What is the first thought in my life? What gains the time in my evening after work? Is it the words of life in Jesus and fellowship with his people? Or is it all these other things that Solomon chased? Is it the success in life? Is it my grades? Is it my security in my home? Is it my friendships? Is it my television shows? Is it my computer? I mean, these things all stand before us and we stack them up and we build security around them. And Jesus puts his disciples, will you run away and be safe and comfortable or will you follow me? I suspect, James, you might have said this, but to eat his bread, to eat his body, and to drink his blood was a familiar Jewish form of speech to say, will you follow me on my path? Will you be like me in walking down this road? And that bread and that blood, John will show us very clearly, means a life that goes to the cross. In the early church, to be a serious Christian meant I'm going to stand and be, be suspect to being imprisoned, beaten, and killed. Today, we have this huge spectrum of Christianity. You can be safe anywhere along it. And most of us are probably most identified for our political leanings, right? Christianity gets known for whether it votes right or left, what political causes it follows. But here's Jesus saying, will you step aside from all that and be a devoted follower? How do we do that? You know, that's the question. How do I become a serious follower of faith? In that story of Solomon that we read about and David, there's a refrain. If you ever read the books of Solomon and Kings, as these kings come to reign and they end their reign, they're always judged by a comparison to David and their fathers. And he reigned righteously like his father David and his sons. Or he did not reign righteously. And what is it about David? Because David was disobedient. David was just as sinful as Solomon. Why is he heroic? And it's because this, if you track David's story, after the sins, David falls back into repentance. There are clear cycles in David's life of coming back again and again from his sins to repentance to a deeper relationship with the Lord, to a devotion, to setting aside the, the kingship and the power, to a weakness and a vulnerability as David's life goes on. And Solomon is still living in both worlds. 
And Scripture doesn't set up a perfect example in the Old Testament. It sets up David and Solomon. Will you be the Christian who gives yourself to the basic practices, to church, to prayer, to Scripture, to gospel reading, to the community of faith? Or will you try and hold these two worlds together? That's what Jesus does with Peter and Judas, too. It will cost Peter his life to say yes. And it will cost Judas his life to say yes, to say no. And the test is at the end of that story, for he knew Judas would not bear the cross. Judas was not ready to do what the Lord might demand of him to be a follower. So I set this before us as we start a new year, as we refresh our faith this Sunday and set out to being good Christians. We won't be perfect. We will be back here Sunday confessing what happened in the coming week. But to leave like Peter, who stumbles his ways to the Gospels and says, but where would we go? For you have the words of life. May the Lord draw us in and keep us with those words of life that we may be found faithfully walking and growing in him and becoming seriously committed Christians. Amen.